All right, uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you guys here today. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. And I'm glad that everyone was able to make it through the snowstorm yesterday, or Friday through yesterday, and that we can all be here together to worship and celebrate this wonderful Christmas day together. So I want to open up uh, this Christmas message by asking a question, which is, what is the greatest birthday party that you've ever been a part of? Perhaps it was your own birthday party, or you were invited to someone's birthday party, whether they are the same age as you, a child, whatever it may be. What made that party, you know, great? Was it the incredible spread of delicious food that was present? Was it the guest list, the different people that were in attendance? Or the activities or games that were part of that celebration? I always find it interesting hearing the stories of different birthday parties of celebrities. You probably know the stories I'm thinking of, where a certain celebrity has a birthday party and they gather all of these A-list names to their party. They're renting out the most exclusive venues in the world. They're having the most incredible food, the most ridiculous activities that you could possibly imagine. And all we're thinking is, wow, I wish I could be there. I wish a mere mortal, a simpleton like myself could be a part of this you know, incredible party because it just seems so incredibly fun. Well, there is a birthday that surpasses all birthdays, and that is the birthday of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a birthday that's been celebrated for 2,000 years plus and still going strong. It is a birthday celebrated by probably over a billion people on this planet today, all gathered together in churches, at dinner tables, amongst friends, some of them not even knowing what they're actually you know, celebrating. There is no person whose birthday can compare to that of Jesus Christ? And of course, the question is why? Why are we remembering this poor Jewish carpenter who came from one of the most insignificant towns that you could ever, ever imagine? Why are we remembering his birthday today in such a big way more than any other person that's ever lived? And so that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about the birth of Christ. And specifically, we're going to be talking about why his birth is so important. We're not going to be reading the traditional um, nativity narrative that we normally read during Christmas. We're going to be reading more about why Jesus even came to this earth in the first place. What is he trying to do? What was the point of it? And that will answer and help us understand why we celebrate this birthday so. So today's uh, sermon is called Jesus Came From You, and we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. So if you have your Bible, feel free to open it up, um, either hard copy or on your phone, but if not, it's okay. We're going to have it up here on the screen uh, as well. So let's take a look through uh, Luke 5, 27 to 32. So Luke writes, after this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his task booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with this tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning we worship you. 
we gather here to praise your name, to exclaim how great and wonderful you are, and to celebrate what you have done for us over 2,000 years ago. We thank you for your mercy and your love that is extended towards us and that is extended to all sinners. And we ask that in this morning that you would help us as we read your word to understand what you want to say to us, O God. Help us not to read what we want, O God, but instead to know what you are clearly saying to us through your word this morning. Holy Spirit, be present amongst us and illuminate your word into our hearts and help it be something that applies not just for the rest of our morning, but for the rest of the week, for the rest of our lives. So we thank you, O God, once again for bringing us here and being present among us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the passage begins today with Luke telling us that Jesus went out, he's going on his travels, and he sees a tax collector, a tax collector by the name of Levi. And it's very notable that Jesus tells us his profession, that he is a tax collector. If you don't know, tax collectors were probably among the most despised people in Jewish society in the first century. Now, probably for most of us, we already don't really like taxes. You know, for most of us, we think, you know, this is my hard-earned money, and I've worked so hard, and I had my boss yell at me, and I had to do tasks that I don't enjoy doing. I don't want to have to give up, you know, a single cent more than I have to, and anyone who makes me do that is my enemy. You know, that's, that, that might be some of the, the attitudes that we have towards taxes, and no one really enjoys it, but, you know, we do, and it's important. But there's a difference between maybe our dislike for taxes and the dislike that the average Jewish person would have had. See, regardless of our politics, we all kind of understand that, you know, our taxes go towards, you know, our, our society as abroad. It gives us, you know, security, infrastructure, healthcare, all these various things that we, you know, enjoy. So it makes, you know, sense to us. We may not like it, but it makes sense and we understand. But the Jewish people in the time of Jesus, they were not giving their taxes to a friendly government that had their interests in mind. No, their taxes went to an oppressive government that was not even their own, that being the government of Rome, the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, as we know from countless texts, countless historical scripts, that they were a brutal society, especially towards those regions or territories that they annexed, like Judea and Galilee, where the Jewish people lived. So in Jewish society, a tax collector, they were treated as someone who worked for the Roman government. And immediately, the rest of the society viewed these people as traitors, as people who betrayed their fellow Jew. So that's bad enough, but it doesn't end there. Because it's not just that tax collectors worked for the, for the enemy, for the oppressors, but tax collectors were known to be morally corrupt. So this is how kind of things worked for a tax collector. What you did to get the job is you would bid against every other person who wanted to be a tax collector. And you would go to your local Roman government and say, all right, I, I can get $1 million from this territory. Give me the job. And then someone else may come along. Jamie might come along and say, hold on, hold on. Do you think Dom could be a good tax collector? I'm going to get you know, $1.2 million. And like, all right, Jamie, 
you're going to get the job. And then Mackenzie comes along and she's like, hold on, what Jamie said, forget about that. I am going to bring $1.5 million to you. Like, all right, that's very impressive. Mackenzie, you get the job. So Mackenzie bid up everyone else and says, I can extract the most amount of money for you, and she would get the contract. And that's how it worked for you know, the tax collectors. So they're playing kind of a game amongst themselves with the Jewish people's lives at hands. But the rule for them was whatever you promised to the Roman government, that is what you had to give after all of your collection. And whatever you could get extra on top, you kept that for yourself. So let's say Mackenzie went out to all the different towns and she collected $3 million. She's really good at her job. She's able to you know, get every last penny from someone. She gets $3 million. She gets to pocket $1.5 million because she only has to give the $1.5 million that she promised. And Peter is a happy, happy man. <laughs> so this was the moral and corrupt practice of tax collector. So they were an enemy to their people, they were a traitor to their people, but they were also someone who simply just had no regard, no care for the well-being of the Jewish people while in the meantime being incredibly rich, incredibly wealthy themselves. So just consider how weird it is that this is the person that Jesus sees and says, come follow me. I'm going to invite you to walk with me, to be with me, and become one of my disciples. This would have been unheard of in that society. It would have been outrageous for a rabbi, let alone someone who claimed that he was the son of God. At least this is how people would have perceived it. It would have been outrageous to them that such a person like Levi, such a insignificant, such a evil, such a treacherous, sinful person like Levi, could be invited to become the disciple of a great, great teacher. How do we know that this is the cultural norm? Well, if we move forward to our next verses, later on, Levi hosts a great banquet for Jesus. And in this banquet, he invites his friends, his fellow colleagues, the other tax collectors. And well, we don't know who else the other people are, but they're just called sinners. They're all present at this banquet. And then we see the Pharisees, a group called the Pharisees. These were the religious elite at the time. These guys set the law. These guys set the cultural expectations. And they see this scene of Jesus with all of these despicable people of their society. And he says, complains to, this, to Jesus' disciples. They don't even have the, the courage to complain to Jesus directly. And they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when we read this passage today, Usually our first thought could be, why are the Pharisees so difficult? Why are they so self-righteous? Why are they saying who should or should not be able to have access to Jesus? And this is indeed a fair, uh, fair interpretation. What they are doing, what they're saying is completely wrong. It is sinful and evil in and of itself. But the truth is, the reality is that, you know, we can actually kind of identify with the Pharisees sometimes we sometimes have in our own thoughts, in our own minds, who or who is not worthy, who or who is not good, is not right, who would be allowed to be present with God. We say to ourselves, surely God wouldn't want anything to do with this person, someone who is a liar, who is greedy, who is deceitful, 
violent, promiscuous, doesn't make any effort to go to church. Why would God have such time for these people when he can just go find out with people that have a pure heart, who are morally upright, follow all the laws, are charitable, are kind, and, and proven to make a difference with their lives? This is the type of people that God wants, surely. You know, that's who he wants, not these people. In a 2020 poll by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, they did a survey of a bunch of U.S. adults, and they asked them, how does one get into heaven? And they found that 48% of U.S. adults affirmed the statement that a person who is generally good or does enough good things for others will earn a place in heaven. Let me say that one more time. They found that 48% of U.S. adults affirmed the statement that if someone is generally good or does enough good for others, they deserve to get into heaven. That is by far the number one answer in this poll. People believe that. People believe it's just, whether it's subconscious or consciously, we believe that people have to do or be a certain way in order to deserve a certain outcome. But the problem with believing that salvation is dependent on our works or being good enough or doing good enough for others is we don't know what the bar is. We don't know what good enough actually is or doing enough good things actually is. Like take the, take the example of finances because we're talking about Levi. We're talking about money. You know, what is, what does it mean to be good enough with your money? Does it just mean not stealing from someone? Or does it also mean being charitable? And if it means also being charitable, how much should you be charitable? Is 1% enough? 2%? 5%? 10%? How many people should you, you know, stop by and give money to when you're walking along on your way to work? Is one person enough? Two, three, four, what's the line? You know, as you begin to reflect and think and ask that question to yourself, there is really only one answer, and that answer is to be perfect. That answer is to be 100%. And the reality is, is that there's only one person who can be 100%, and that is God himself. God himself is the only one who is good enough. In fact, in another passage, a rich man goes up to Jesus and calls him a good teacher, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. So only God is good enough. And for many people, when they come to that kind of revelation that, you know, I'm not that good, I'm actually not good enough, it causes us to be filled with despair, to be filled with sorrow, because we realize that we are not the person that Jesus, or we think to ourselves, I am certainly not the type of person that Jesus would ever want to be with, and we preemptively shut him down. We, prevent, we preemptively turn away from him, run away from him, and just say, you know, if God doesn't love me, then what's the point? But the good news for us this morning is that any idea that Jesus is only looking for the people that are put together, who have made something of themselves, who are not a hot mess, well, that could not be farther from the truth. After overhearing the Pharisees' conversation and their slander towards him, here is Jesus' response to them. He said, answers them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Here, Jesus acknowledges that there is a purpose to his life. There is a purpose to his birth. 
he talks about that he has come for a reason. It's not by accident, it's not by chance, but he has come for a reason. You know, imagine if, if uh, everything that we hold dear about the nativity narrative, that Jesus was born to a virgin, he was born in a manger, there was a star, there were wise men, there were shepherds, they came, there were angels. And then after that narrative, you know, Jesus grew up, he became a carpenter, he did great at his job, he married, had children, lived a good life, and died. You know, why would we still be celebrating Christmas if that was really what Jesus' life was about? You know, just a normal, ordinary, going-through-the-motions type of life. But Jesus' life was filled with an intent purpose. He came. He came. He was born, and he came to us for a purpose. And what was that purpose? Well, he says very clearly that his purpose, why he has come, is to call sinners to repentance. He has come to call sinners to repentance. You know, this is not a Christmas passage, but this summarizes the Christmas message. Jesus came, he was born on this earth, to call you and I, sinner, who are sinners, towards repentance. But what does this mean? What does it actually practically look like for Jesus to call us sinners towards repentance? Well, let's break each word down one by one. So first, um, with sin. What does sin mean? Well, typically when we think about sin, we, we talk about just doing right and wrong, or, and, and sin is just doing enough wrong things. But I have a quote here from uh, Paul Carter, who wrote a, a, an article on what sin is on the Gospel Coalition Canada website, and I found that this was actually a very helpful um, statement. He says, sin is acting or behaving in a way that does not conform with God's characters or commands. It is about crossing lines that have been laid down for us by God. Sin is thus an act of rebellion and distrust. It is us saying to God, you don't get to make the rules. I'm capable of deciding right and wrong for myself. So therefore, sin covers not just what we think, traditionally think of it as you know, these wrongs such as greed, selfishness, violence, idolatry, worshiping other gods. But what I love about this quote is he brings everything back to our relationship with God. That when we do all of these things, we are disobeying God's commands and his characters. And therefore, it is our rebellion towards God, which is at the heart of sin. So if we take Levi for an example, as a learned Jew, he would have known that in God's laws, it is commanded that he worships God alone, and it is commanded that he should love his neighbors. He should care for the interest of his fellow Jew. He should be interested in serving and seeing them uplifted and upheld. But when he takes on this position of a tax collector, and when he wrings out as much money as he possibly can from other people, well, he is knowingly breaking God's law and he's breaking God's character. But what Jesus says about sin next in this verse that we're reading this morning is probably the most incredible thing and probably the biggest, I think, maybe game changer for us, is he compares sin here to a sickness. He includes this reference of himself being a doctor who takes care of the sick. And he says that just like a doctor 
goes out to see patients, he has come to address this problem of sin. So he's describing that our sinful state, it's not just about the actions that we do, but it is something within us, something that needs to be cured, just like cancer, just like dementia, like Alzheimer's, like any other sickness that you might think of. And when it comes to sickness, you simply cannot go to a patient and tell them, okay, you have cancer, it's time to stop having cancer. You have Alzheimer's, it's time to stop having Alzheimer's. You know, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. You can't just stop being sick because through the will of mind. You need a treatment, you need medicine, you need care in order to become better or to be able to cope with certain sicknesses. You know, that is the reality with sin. It's something deep present within us that is trapping us, distorting us, that is holding us from living the way that we have been called to live if we would have been perfectly healthy. So who here has ever felt trapped by a certain behavioral trait that they have? Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's bitterness, jealousness, greed, a lack of compassion. Have you ever felt, I wish I could be less like this. I wish I could be more like that. And I'm trying as hard as I possibly can, but I always just come back to the same way that I always am. I always end up still being just a little bit angry, just a little bit bitter, a little bit jealous. You know, that is the entrapment of sin. And for whatever example it may be for you, whatever you may be wrestling with, I believe that we can all relate to this in some instance, that our sinful nature is a part of us. And there are sometimes there are some things that we just can't change by our own effort. So Jesus has, called, has come to fix this problem of sin. And what is he going to do? Well, he says that he is going to call sinners towards repentance. That's his plan, to bring sinners towards repentance. So what does you know, repentance mean? This key word that he's talking about. Well, typically when we talk about the term repentance, what we have in mind is being sorrowful and apologetic about our sin so that we can you know, seek forgiveness and have an excuse from our punishment over what we have done. And indeed, the Bible is very clear that Jesus, because of his death on the cross, because of what we has, he has done, he has died for our sin, taken the punishment that we deserve upon himself, that we get to experience forgiveness. We get to experience mercy and an excuse from our sin. But this isn't the full picture of what repentance is all about. So I want to break down now what biblical repentance is. Uh, and in their book, How People Change, which is one of the discipleship pathway classes that we run in our church, uh, the authors Lane and Tripp outline three parts of repentance. In the first, they, uh, they say that repentance involves waking up. We need to wake up in order to see the situation that one's life is in and realize that change is needed. We need to be aware of the problem of sin and know what it is. And instead of just believe, not, and, and stop believing that it's not a big deal or I'm just like everyone else, something that we all deal with, realize, you know, the problem and disaster for what it actually is. Many people live in ignorance of the problem of sin. 
or live just simply resisting and hesitating towards it. The Pharisees themselves would be such an example. We have just seen that they have seen Jesus being compassionate towards those who are the outcasts of society, those who, who need help, those who need to become more godly, and instead themselves saying, you know what, how can I help? How can I help these people escape their sinful lives and become more godly? They just simply say, what's Jesus doing? How dare he? They are ignorant and unaware, and they need to wake up of their own pride. They need to wake up of their own sin. So we need to wake up is the first part of repentance. The second part they describe as being as owning up, and this is what we traditionally think of as, as seeking forgiveness, seeking, um, seeking mercy, realizing about your wrongs and then taking responsibility that sin or that your behaviors are the problems, that these are the natures of sin and these are not the fault of others, but the fault of oneself. So because we are probably very familiar with this idea of repentance, I'm not going to go much further, but I just want to highlight two things to clarify about it. First, owning up is supposed to be godly sorrow over our sin. Not being sorrowful that we have done something wrong and that we were caught about it, but rather that we are truly sorrowful about how our interactions have harmed someone and about how our, in, how our behavior or what we have done has harmed God or has defied him or, or disobeyed towards him. And second, owning up means a deep investigation into one's heart. It's not enough just to say, okay, I was angry, it's not right, I won't be angry anymore. I said this wrong thing, I shouldn't have said it, I'm not going to do that anymore. But rather investigating and going deep, why do I have this response? Why did I say this thing? Why do I have this anger? Why do I have this bitterness, this jealousy? For Levi, why do I have this, this need for wealth? Why do I need to extort others just so that I can be more wealthy? What insecurities am I trying to fill? What am I doing with my relationship with God? What if, why don't I trust him to take care of my you know, heart? Going into these deeper you know, questions about how we are with God, because at the heart of every sin issue is really a break in our relationship with God. And then finally, it is to turn from sin and run to Christ. In the Greek, the term repentance technically and literally means to turn away, to go from one direction to the other, leaving a life of sin, leaving a life that is owned by sin, and instead choosing a life that is filled with Christ, that is filled with his ways and his love and in relationship with him. And so in a sense, repentance is not simply about just what you say in that prayer, but what you resolve to do with your life now every day moving forward. It's that resolve to say, I'm not going, for Levi, to say, I'm not going to be obsessed with money anymore. I'm not going to make that define my life. I'm going to make trusting in God define my life. Or if it's anger, I'm not going to let anger control my life. Instead, I'm going to rest in the peace and love of God. Or I'm not going to let anxiety run things. I'm going to let my belief that God is in control of my life you know, take over from here. We are called, when we repent, to have a changed life. But as I mentioned earlier, 
Just like you can't tell someone who is sick to stop being sick, you can't tell someone just to change and be changed. And so here is the best news of all. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, not by just going around and telling people, okay, time to repent, time to change, straighten up, do better. He ultimately achieved this by what he would do on the cross a few years later on in his, at the end of his ministry. Jesus knows that we can't break the power of sin ourselves. Jesus is aware that you and I, whatever our thing that we're wrestling with, we're not going to fix it just by trying harder or giving it a good old college effort or with a new strategy or a new plan. He knew that we needed, just like a good doctor knows the treatment or an antidote for a certain sickness or disease, he knows that we needed something that would deal with that heart problem. And so what did he do? Well, Jesus went, he went to the cross, he allowed himself to be hung on the cross, and he took all of our sins upon himself. The Bible said he took all of those sins, every single thing that you and I have done, he took them upon himself. And he allowed our sin to become upon him, to become his sin, so that when he died for you and I, he took the punishment that we deserve, the wrath of God, he took it upon himself, and he actually died. But moreover than that, he lived that perfect life, that life that obeyed God in every single moment, every single second of his life. And the Bible says that he gives us the credit of that perfect life. The Bible talks about imputing righteousness. We receive that credit so that when we die and we stand before the Father after our death and he get, looks at us and is a judgment of our lives, he no longer sees the records of all the things that we have done in his book, but rather he just sees his son and the credit and the life of his son upon us. This is why the Bible talks about we have been crucified with Christ. When he died, we died. Our old lives are gone. And when he raised up, when he came back to life, we came up with a new life. A new life that is now filled and saturated with him. Able to live in peace, to live in joy, to live in love, to be able to worship God the way that he has called us to, and to be able to live in peace and harmony amongst one another as he has called us to. So how do we have repentance? Because of what Jesus has done on the cross. That is how we turn. That is how we make that change and see real growth. And that's what would inspire Levi, even though he may not understand it all at the moment. But he sees Jesus, and he sees someone, says, I'm going to go with him. I don't like where my life is going. I don't like how things are right now. But this guy, you know, there's something about it, and I'm going to go with him. And that is the first way that we apply this passage. We apply this passage just the way that Levi did, by getting up, leaving everything, and trusting in Jesus. He didn't know where Jesus was going to go. He didn't know how he would be able to provide for himself anymore now that he's get, sitting up from his tax collector booth. But he chose to get up and to follow Jesus and to see what would happen because he believed, he believed that, even though he doesn't know everything of how it's going to unfold, that his, that his eternal life, his soul, is going to be better for it. So for you and I this morning, you know, I pray that we reflect and we think about how can I embrace Jesus more in my life? How can I trust him more? How can I let go of certain things that I'm holding on to, 
certain attitudes, certain idols that might be present, and how do I trust him and walk with him? Pray over it and reflect and, and make that part of your Christmas experience this year to finding a new way to grow in your trust and love for Jesus because he has come for you so that you could live with him. And second, we see this scene of Levi immediately afterwards holding this great banquet and inviting all of his co-workers, all of his friends present so that they could know and they could see Jesus. If we truly get a grasp of the grace of God and how merciful that he is towards sinners like us, even though we do not deserve it, well, it should inspire us and move us to want everyone else to meet this wonderful person, to meet this great Savior, to meet the one who enables us to see real change in our lives. And so this Christmas, I don't know what kind of gatherings you have planned. Maybe you already had them yesterday, or maybe you have a couple more things that are going to happen later on today or throughout the week with family, you know, with friends. But I want you to imagine your gathering table to be like this one, a gathering table that is filled not with everyone who has their lives together and who is perfect, but of broken, simple people just like you and I who all need the love of our Savior. How can you invite Jesus into that table? How can you invite Jesus to be present in your gatherings, in your conversations, and over your dinner? And how might the people that are sitting around you need that love of Jesus just as much as you know you need him? So embrace Jesus this Christmas and lead others towards embracing him as well. That is our Christmas message. That is our Christmas goal.